Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. My name is Joey. Great to be with you all this morning. And um, man, this is my first time having the gift of sharing with you all in person. And just want to say hello to all those, our church who's gathered across our area and homes, as David mentioned. Uh, it's a really interesting time. Maybe that's not the best descriptive word to describe what we've been through this last year. But it's been intense, has it not? Yeah. And yet you're here. And yet we're here. And yet the Lord is here with us. We're in a series called Fulfilled. We're walking through the Gospel of Luke, so you can open up your Bibles with me, your scripture with me here. And we love just walking through books of scripture, um, walking through section by section. And we follow along with that through a great resource that many of you are part of. And if you haven't yet had a chance to connect in with us, it's called The Daily. And a few years ago, we realized a lot of Christians don't actually read the word for themselves. And so we came up with this really simple and I think has been a helpful way to encourage believers in our church to dive into the scripture. And just to be really clear on this resource, it is not supposed to be a sexy devotional, okay? Although many of the people who contribute to it are incredible writers, and we love the way they open up, but it is a tool that is uh, seeking to encourage us to be a people who are in the word day by day, week by week, to be with Jesus in his presence. So we'd love for you to uh, follow along with us. This morning, we're in Luke chapter 9. We're looking at verses 23 through 27, and I'd like to read it to us, and then we'll dive in together. You guys, you know what? It's daylight savings, isn't it? Is everybody a little bit sleepy? This passage is going to wake you up. I mean, like, it, you're, you're not going to walk out of here sleepy. It's, it's a hard-hidden one. So, these are the words of Jesus. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself... And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And this is God's word. Let's pray briefly. Father, we thank you for the truth of this living, active word. We thank you that it's, it comes to us over centuries. It's inspired. It's been canonized. It is your truth. It is the authority that we as a community, a community in formation, live under. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring us back under it this morning, under your words this morning, and that my brothers, my sisters, my friends, those in here who are seeking you, who are just asking questions about your existence and your teaching and your message, that you would make yourself known to them in this place. We acknowledge your presence here, 
And we are so thankful, Lord, to be able to gather in our homes, online, in person. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In June 1939, a few months before Hitler invades Poland, there was a young German pastor. He fled his motherland to take a teaching post at Union Seminary in New York City. Upon his arrival, he wrote to his mentor, Professor Reihold Niebuhr. He says this, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. (laughs) There was a conflict within him. He found himself in this tension. There was this tension brewing in him. Does he preserve himself? Does he, as it were, save himself while his family and friends and nation suffer? And the reality is that the tension that he was feeling is the tension that you and I feel in our lives just about every day in almost every situation or every waking moment. The reality is that we're constantly thinking about our self-preservation. Are you with me here? We could just be honest about this, okay? It's even harder in a crazy year, chaotic year. Things have changed a lot, and we tend to turn inward on ourselves and think primarily about me. Just like last night when I went to the store and uh, my son wanted a sandwich from Wawa, so that's what we did. And we went to Wawa and got the sandwich, and I thought to myself, ooh, I would really love a piece of chocolate. So I got, have you seen those little, uh, you know, chocolate, I don't know what they're called, but they're like at the counter of a gas station. Come on, you with me here? Nobody's ever done this? Okay, and I'm like, you know, so I get this nice piece of chocolate and I bring it home. And I walk through the door, and I realize to myself, my wife loves dark chocolate, and I just have one chocolate here in my hand. (laughs) And I got this chocolate for me, and I went through that entire experience, not thinking once, not one time. I wonder if my wife would want a nice dark piece of chocolate tonight. I went into that gas station, I was thinking about one thing, me, my own preservation. And maybe you're like this. We are all committed to our very own special self-preservation project. I mean, how often do you think during the day, consciously or subconsciously, what do I want? What benefits me? What makes me look good? What in this situation, here's the big one, what in this situation makes me happy? Okay, What preserves my sense of security in the world? What gives me a sense of esteem or a sense of self at work, at home, you know? And I, I get it. In the midst of the pandemic, it probably is easy for us to turn inward and basically have this uh, picture that reduces us in our personhood, and it gives us this sense of preservation or safety. But, but in this passage, Jesus turns this whole thing on its head. He turns everything upside down, and what he proposes is a completely alternative way of gaining preservation 
the kind of preservation we so desire. So he actually doesn't discount our desire for preservation. We find that in verse 24 at the end. He actually talks about life as something that is sacred and something that actually needs to be preserved. But he's also honest about our insecurities, and he knows how desperately we are in need of preservation, or in Jesus' language, we might say, how desperate we are in need of saving. But Jesus' proposal on how we're preserved is a completely alternative reality. I mean, he turns this whole thing on his head. We think to preserve our lives, we need to exert some kind of power, some kind of control, some kind of strength, some kind of intellect, okay? We need to harness our relationships Don't give the chocolate away. Hold on to it for yourself. But Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Lose your life. Okay, in this passage, it's the exact opposite of what we might expect, of what we experience day to day. I mean, he is challenging us to the core. It's amazing. First century Jesus, 2,000 years later, speaking directly to our struggle. And what he says is lasting preservation for you and for me in this world and forever comes through denying ourselves. Denying ourselves for someone else through radical, bold action. And he says, this is what it means to be my disciple. So let's look at this first thought of what it means to deny ourselves. okay? Verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him... Here he says, deny himself. I just want to look at these two words here. Very important words, okay? If Jesus is asking you, and if Jesus is asking me to deny ourself, it probably is first good to understand what our self is. Does that make sense? Like, otherwise, we don't quite know what Jesus is actually calling us to give up. So what makes us us? Have you ever thought about this question? Like, what makes you you? Okay? Is, it your, is it your inner psychological life? Is it your emotional life? Is it defined by your things or your relationships? And, and mostly in the 21st century, we think when we talk about the self, okay, thanks to Freud and others, we think about the self as just our sort of internal, psychological, emotional well-being, our own happiness. Okay? You see this splattered across every aspect of culture. It's in the water we drink. It's in the air we breathe. Where did this come from? Let me just bring us back through a really brief history. Just stick with me here, okay? Take notes if you want to stay awake, okay? Greek dualism, as you may have learned in school or you may be aware of, really separated out the body and the soul. So there, there is this, the body is, is a bad thing. The soul is a good thing. There's invisible, there's visible, and you know what? They're kind of separated out, okay? Um, even though through the ancient church all the way up through, uh, through the Reformation, really, there was more of a view of an integrated body or integrated person. We're going to talk about that in a moment. What happened in the Enlightenment, what happened in the, in, through the Reformation uh, is this rationalism came up that reinforced that dualism. So what happened was, in a way, j- very gross summary, we were reduced to a mind. Humanity is a thinking person, okay? The definition of the self is a mind. That's what it was around 1500, okay? In response to the Reformation, in response to the Enlightenment, you might say, 
there was this backlash through a movement called Romanticism. Anybody familiar with this? Okay, some of you have studied, some of you remember this, some not, okay? And Romantics brought up a good point. It's like, hey, if we're just reduced to a mind, if we only are rational beings, what about the emotions? What about the feelings? What about the invisible parts of us? And that sort of forged this backlash that started turning us inward into our psychological inward feelings and mind. That is a gross generalization, but just for the sake of this morning, just track with me here, okay? So over the last 200 years, our self or our identity or our point of reference of reality has increasingly been reduced just to our feelings, okay? So when we read Jesus' words in his passage, he says, you need to deny yourself, we think, uh, he, he must be asking me to give up my happiness, my desires, the things I want in life. That's part of absolutely what he's asking us to give up, but that's not the whole thing, okay? So what we have in our day and age, okay, and this is really important to understand this passage, is an entire culture that you and I are fully part of, okay? We're not, I'm not throwing rocks here and saying, that's them out there. I'm saying, that's me in here, okay? Last night, chocolate, perfect example, okay? We have an entire culture that is depending on our personal taste and our personal judgments for everything about our lives. The mind has been marginalized. Reason is no longer anything we want to deal with. The body is now just something that can be manipulated to affirm our inner feelings and our perspectives. Okay? The mystery, the enchantment, the integration is totally lost. And so there, is there any wonder that in our day and age there's so much pressure on our psychology? There's so much depression. There's so much anxiety. Think about all the pressure that's put on us if we are reduced just to our feelings. It's such a thin perspective of what it means to be human. It's, not in, it's just incomplete. It's not to say we're not feelings. We are feelings, but we're far more than feelings. Okay? But Jesus in this passage gives us a different definition of self, which is the amazing thing about this passage. Okay? He uses the word in Greek, Psyche, which is where we get psychology, and you might be tempted to think, well, Jesus is talking about just that inner feeling, that inner desire here. But, track with me here, okay? There is a word, this word in the New Testament, Psyche, is translated in the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, okay? For the word in the Old Testament, do you know what that word is? Soul. Soul. So Mark actually uses this word soul four times. Luke here uses it too. But when Jesus says to deny, when he talks about himself, when he talks about life in this passage, verse 24, he's talking about, the, he's talking about a person as a soul, not as a bundle of feelings. And the vision of soul in the Old Testament, again, before Greek dualism, was this beautiful idea that's totally in line with how God created us of this integrated being. There are material parts to us. We have bodies, right? We can't deny that. And there are immaterial parts to us. We have, we have mind. We have emotions. We have motivations in the deepest parts of us. But the Old Testament and how God created us was not to parse these things out and to see these things as different or to reduce us to a mind or reduce us to an emotion. God sees us and he created us as integrated whole beings through and through. Our body, 
the, the material parts of us, our emotions, our minds, our, our feelings, our motivations, okay? This is, comes out of Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This word, psyche, in Luke chapter 9, the word that comes from soul in the Old Testament, is about a person who whose breath has been, the breath of God has been breathed into them, and they have become a living creature. The poet Wendell Berry says it this way, my mind, like most people's, has been deeply influenced by dualism, okay? And I can see how dualistic minds deal with this verse. The formula given in Genesis 2-7 is not man equals body plus soul. The formula there is soul equals dust plus breath, it's important. According to this verse, God did not make a body and put a soul into it like a letter into an envelope. He formed man of dust, and then by breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. The dust formed as man and made to live did not embody a soul. It became a soul. That is the whole creature. Humanity is thus presented to us in Adam not as a creature of two discrete parts temporarily glued together, but a single mystery, a single mystery. Isn't that interesting? You are a soul. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. You have immaterial parts of you too. You have a mind. You have feelings. You have emotions. But you are created by God, a soul. And so when Jesus says, in order to preserve yourself, you have to deny yourself, he's talking about something more than just your internal psychology and your own happiness. He's calling your entire identity into question here. I mean, that is, that is what Jesus is getting at if we start to understand this definition. Okay, So to deny in this passage, verse 23, to deny oneself to, it means to disregard his own interest or to prove even false to himself, to act, in, act entirely unlike himself, to deny, to not accept, to reject, to refuse something offered. He is asking Jesus in this passage, what he is proposing here, what he is calling us to, is to take everything that makes us us and lay it down before him. To find lasting preservation, Jesus is saying, there has to be a radical deconstruction of all the things you have constructed around yourself that have given you a sense of preservation and safety and identity in the world. And if that scares you, you're listening to me. You're listening to Jesus' words here. If you think that just means, oh, well, I'm just going to give up the thing that makes me happy in life for a little while and I'm going to just call it a day, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. But secondly, this denial, this deconstruction of ourself, and this is, the, this is the incredible news in this passage, Jesus doesn't just say, deny yourself, lay it all down. He actually brings it into a context. He brings it into a place. And do you know what he brings it into? A relationship with himself. Verse 23, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life and lose, will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake. So threaded through Jesus' words here, it's not this sort of generic denial of self. 
What we find in Jesus' words here is a call to lay down your identity and to find a new identity, not in other things, but in the person of Jesus. So Jesus prophetically speaks into this 21st century moment. He says, you are an integrated soul, and as an integrated soul, to preserve who you are, your identity cannot be founded on a relationship with yourself. Your identity cannot be founded on your own inner psychology. Your identity in the world, the thing that makes you you, and the thing that makes you feel okay in the world, cannot be based on your desires and your feelings and your internal happiness. It will all fall apart and it will be the most stressful thing in the world and it will cause you severe anxiety because none of those things can hold the test of the, of the challenges that we face in, a, in the world. Rather, Jesus says, base your identity, your soul finds identity in him, in me, Jesus says. Come after me, okay? The, the, the direct translation here is to come behind me. So you get this picture of Jesus walking, and we're actually coming behind him, under him, with him. And he says, for his sake, on account of. They say, so what does this look like, okay? Because you have things, right? You have clothes on your body, okay? You live in homes. We have things that are all around us. So is Jesus calling you to sell all those things, point blank, and give it all away? He might be calling you to that. I mean, that would not surprise me if Jesus called you to that kind of thing because he constantly called people to that. But what he certainly is calling you to is to consider how these things are actually subjected to him. How is your car? Or how is your home? Or how is your time? Or how are your abilities? Or how are your relationships? Or how is your vocation? How are these things brought perfectly under the authority and the lordship of Jesus? To deny those things for yourself and to offer those things for his sake, for his purpose. And it will sting. And it will be a cost. And it will be a sacrifice. Because that is the glory and the beauty of our King as he calls us to come and lay our lives, everything about us down. I've been processing this with my nine-year-old son, and uh, Mateus, and he loves playing in the neighborhood with friends, and we're just, you know, we're just reading the word together, and we, uh, this, it wasn't this particular passage, but it came up, and I said, and, and, and the topic we were talking about is, how would Jesus call you to put others before yourself? And so what does that look like for a nine-year-old, okay? Well, he plays this game in the backyard with a bunch of his friends in the neighborhood. And in this game, there is a younger kid in the neighborhood who so desperately wants to win this Star Wars game. I mean, he just, he just wants to be like the big kids and just win every time. And my son, the Spirit of God working in his life, he took note of this. He's like... I said, so, so how did this play out? We were just processing last night. I said, how did this play out? How, how were you able? I mean, did Jesus give you an opportunity? Did he give you power through his spirit to love and serve, to lay your life down for others? And he said, yeah. Actually, we were playing the Star Wars game, and uh, I let Owen capture me every time. <laughs> and that was the win for Owen. And that was the loss for Mateus. <laughs> he didn't get to win the game. As some of us in here like to win. It might be, Jesus might be calling you to lose something. 
And, and so here we have this beautiful little picture, okay? The, the Spirit of God working in, you know, this little backyard game. What is your backyard game? What is the thing? Where is the place? Who are the people that Jesus is before you saying, if I am your Lord, if you call me Lord, Lord, if you would come after me, if you would be my disciple, okay, this isn't like for like, this isn't for the veterans of the faith, okay? This is for everybody who claims the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with him for days or months or years. He loves us enough to press into us and to ask us about our lives and how we are stewarding and subjecting those things for his sake, for his vision of the world. We are to lose our identity in the things of this world to identify with Christ. This is why he says in verse uh, 25, what good is it, if, what good is it does it profit a person if they gain the entire world? if their entire identity is wrapped up, if they are so preserved in the world, but their soul, as a, as a soul, there is a lostness. What good is that? And then there is this last part of bold action. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And this, oh, friends is the great challenge before the 21st century American, I'll just even get more specific, evangelical church. Will we be a people moving forward who don't just know with our heads, who don't just feel with our hearts, but who take steps with our feet? And I could not be more proud and thankful to be part of this body because many of you are on that journey doing that. And many of you, the Spirit of God has been evoking you, and it is time to get out of the seat. It's time to get out of the seat and out of the comfort and to understand the call of Jesus. He says, get up and walk. Do something. He's going to give you power. It's going to be through his grace. But he does not say, sit still. I don't know where that will bring you. I don't know that, what that will mean for you. I don't know if that means serving within this body. I don't, mean, I don't know if that means go, uh, coming with us into some of the public housing neighborhoods, some of the poorest areas of our city. I don't know if that means traveling overseas. I don't know if that means starting an art gallery. But the Spirit of God will evoke you. Many of us have been living our lives. This has been our experience in this cultural context that we find ourselves in for things that are so much lesser than the glory of God and so much lesser than the beauty of Christ. And I know some of you have gone through hardship who are suffering. You hear Jesus say, carry your cross. You've been doing it because you've experienced loss. You've experienced hardship. But Jesus says, take bold action. Walk it out. Live out your life for the glory of the king. Within two weeks after that young theolo theologian arrived in New York City, after wrestling with preserving himself, he made the decision to return to Germany, to suffer with his people under the Nazi regime. In this time, 
He created seminary on the run where he would secretly go from house to house teaching theology and training pastors. It was during this time that he learned substantially, tangibly, what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus in community, the true cost of discipleship. Taking Jesus' words from our passage today with weight, he would pen these words, costly grace is the incarnation of God. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This young theologian was outspoken against the Nazi regime, His faith was not just privatized and personal. He joined a plot to assassinate Hitler. This guy's one of my heroes. Which was, he was was arrested in April of 1943, and he was brought to a concentration camp. And in early April 1945, almost 76 years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this young theologian, preached his last Sunday sermon and he was taken away to be hung. And as he was being taken away, he said to a fellow prisoner, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Within days, he was hanged to death just two weeks before the soldiers from the United States 90th and 97th Infantry liberated that concentration camp. What is it that calls a person to this kind of bold, radical faith and action. Might we be a people of Jesus in this city, in our area, who live with that kind of faith, with that kind of boldness? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I highly recommend, he wrote this, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. It is Jesus Christ, his love poured out for us on the cross, that is the motivation for us to live this kind of life to the extent that the gospel is reverberating in our hearts to the extent that we see Christ laying down his life at that great cost, is the extent to which we will be compelled and motivated as souls to lay our lives down for his sake. Let's pray.